Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity, this wonderful blessing that you give us each and every week to gather together on a day that you set aside from eternity past for sweet fellowship with you through the reconciling ministry of God the Holy Spirit through your, gun, your son's good name. Father, what a blessing this is to break bread together, to bring into remembrance all that we are to be thankful for each and every day. Every breath we take, even, Father, is from you as a grace gift, as an expression of your mercy and love towards us, the undeserving. Father, we're also reaching out in spirit to those who cannot be with us this morning, those who are ill in our congregation, our beloved family. We want them to know that we love them and that our prayers are with them always and that we desire them to be back with us sometime soon. Your will be done. We pray also for those that are completely lost in this world, Father, that are desperate and in some ways don't even know it, that you humble them. Whatever that means, bring them to their knees, Father. You are almighty, sovereign of the universe. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross, the son who you sent because you loved us, to cancel out that debt against us and make a blessed morning like this even a reality. Thank you. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. May it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, special message this morning, a message that I am more than elated to teach. Um, I think sometimes when you have a ministry like this that is just, for lack of a better term, uh, taking a bull by the horns and not being afraid to speak the truth about our Lord and Savior uh, in the face of all kinds of adversity. There's a lot of stones that have to be unturned, and there's a lot of focused energy on things that, if you're not rightly oriented to God and His sovereignty, can almost appear negative, almost as if, so much of our work, and there's truth to this, is negative in the sense that we're scraping away garbage. Do you know what I mean? I think a lot of people go to church on a Sunday and they just, they want to go be refreshed. You know, it's like, you know, spritzing up or something and they walk out and they're all excited and they're like, oh, that was so good, I needed a good meal. But with the difficulty of the lessons... Um, I realize this as much as anybody in here, maybe arguably more sometimes because of my role, that these are hard lessons. And because they're often, quote, negative, subtractive, you can get inundated and you can get what, uh, you know, an optometrist would say, myopic, nearsighted. And you just think that the whole ministry is negative, but it's not. It's really not. It's really grace and mercy that's being taught uh, over and over. It's just that 
Um, the nature of life nowadays in our own country is just so pervasively awful towards the sovereign God of the universe that somebody has to defend it. Somebody has to defend the gospel. And someone has to protect the flock from the lies. And, you know, if it was all evened out in the churches, I suppose that we could all teach a nice balanced diet of doctrines, if you would. But when some so-called Christian churches are teaching garbage and all they teach is the uplifting stuff, I guess that leaves the other stuff to us. And so I'm elated to teach this morning's message because it's sort of a reprieve from the norm. And so hopefully just sit back and relax and see what the Spirit has to say to you. Hopefully, like I said, you're, you're reading the blogs. If you didn't read the blog, please do so. I'm not sure what else to say to you. Uh, and I really don't want to pull out the rod this morning. Uh, you know, let me just keep that in my back pocket for a while. We began on Thursday with a nice reminder about living in the now. And I was thinking about that. No human being other than Jesus Christ has ever lived in any other time than what is now. We don't have an option. We live right now. That second that just left is gone forever. The second in front of us ain't here, isn't here yet. So we have to live, we have to learn to live in the now because that's our life. Our life is not yesterday. Our life is not tomorrow. Our life is right now. So just put that into perspective. But even so, I'd argue that every person hearing my voice this morning is at least to some degree living either in the past or in the future or both. And quite often as a result, they hardly ever, if at all, Enjoy the blessing called today. You miss it. You're missing the now. What about yesterday? You can't control it. It's gone. If you have to repent, if you have to make amends with somebody because you sinned against them, then do that. But yesterday's gone. And tomorrow, you have no idea. So live now. So many people are not living in the blessing called today. So it is our duty as loving members of Christ's magnificent body to remind each other that today, right now, is a grace gift from our Heavenly Father. Right now. How quickly we forget how quickly our minds are led astray to the deceitfulness of sin. How quickly we abandon our living hope for a hope in rectifying yesterday's mistakes or preparing for tomorrow's tribulations or both. So here's some perspective. Why do we expend so much time and energy on being anxious? 
Why do we try to, quote, fix yesterday's mistakes and, quote, prepare for tomorrow's? Who are we depending on anyways? That's the big question. Who are we depending on? If you're not living in the now, chances are you're dependent on someone other than God. If you're not living in the now, chances are you are living a life that's dependent on someone other than God. Go to Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24, because you have become God. You have taken God's rightful place in your own life. You have usurped His sovereignty, His authority even, in your own life. And even though the Bible says differently that you can't live yesterday because it's gone, you can't control tomorrow because it's not even a reality yet, you should live in the now, even though you're taught that from the pulpit, you still go ahead, live in yesterday's mistakes, and live for tomorrow. And some of you are in the, you know, church is just like almost, I'm not going to say a speed bump, but almost. I guess we'll go to church because it's routine. It's Sunday morning. What else are we going to do? That's no way to approach life. Matthew 6.24 No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And God knows that the United States, this is, this is the plague in the United States. Wealth. We're probably, I think, among, if not the, overall, the most wealthy country on planet Earth. And yet, we act like adolescent brats. We call... Um, our wants, needs, and then we complain. Case in point, you lose power. I don't get power back till Tuesday. What am I going to do? Complain? Knowing and having visited countries, several of them over the course of my life, where they don't even have power, or power is actually something that is a nice to have once in a while at least? What am I going to do? Complain like a little baby? That's not living in the now. Oh, I can't wait till Tuesday. I even caught, I even said, this is how ridiculous I am. And I'm teaching this. Tammy's laughing because she remembers me saying it. I said it last night. I was laying on the floor with my head like this. And I said, ah, I feel like just sleeping until Tuesday. And then I wake up and, it's go and the power's back on. Do you know what I'm saying? What kind of jackass says that? Me. Me. Pin the tail on me, right? What the heck? And of course I catch myself and then God makes me tell you that story. For public shame. Not just enough internal shame. <laughs> you cannot serve God and wealth for this reason, verse 25... I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap 
nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? See, it takes faith to live in the now. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And again, just sharing my own personal experience as a 48-year-old man who's been to the circus a few times. 99 point, you choose the decimal. I'll give you that. 99 plus percent of the time I worry about something, it never happens. 99% of the things that I'm worried about never happen. Never. I'm going to go, being a mathematical type guy, I'm going to go with the probability that it might be a little bit more advantageous for me not to worry about those things at all because 99.9% of them never happen. It's not a very good return on investment, is it, of my time and energy, nor is it of yours. Again, the perspective the Spirit's bringing out first thing this morning is on the board, why do we expend so much time and energy on being anxious? Why do we try to fix yesterday's mistakes and prepare for tomorrow's? Who are we depending on anyways? Who are we depending on? If you're not living in the now, chances are you are not depending on God. As this past week's blog spoke to, and it was titled this, The Advantageous State of Brokenness, we have a merciful God. We have a merciful God. What a wonderful thing to reflect on. While he absolutely refuses to honor an arrogant manipulator who abuses grace or even premeditates sin, for the humble, mercy is everything. For the humble, mercy is everything. Up here on the board... Without mercy, mankind has no hope. If God wasn't merciful, where would we be? Where would we be? Seriously. Have you looked at yourself lately? Have you thought of the sins? Have you thought of the the sinning you've done against others? Do you even know the extent of your sin against others? God does. If we even knew what he knew, this point on the board would magnify all the more. We would have no hope without mercy. Is it fair to say that this morning, knowing what we know about life itself, 
that without hope in God's promises, that His Word is true, and that Jesus is indeed Lord and Savior, that without hope in eternal life, that without hope in these things we are to be pitied most? Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, what's left? If we don't have Christ, if we don't have the gospel, what's left? This is what Paul wrote so fervently about in his treatise on the resurrection even. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Without mercy, mankind has no hope. First Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Again, without mercy, mankind has no hope. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Before I knew it, and I alluded to this earlier, at this point, I hadn't gotten very far in my preparation. I thought this was just going to be the lead-in to our lesson our next lesson on what is repentance and so forth. It was at this point in my preparation for this lesson yesterday morning, the Spirit instructed me to change the original lesson title from what is repentance and who gets to define it to thank God for mercy. We might echo what Paul stated. Go to 2 Corinthians 9.15. 2 Corinthians 9. You want to know what mercy looks like? I mean... You don't have to go very far, and you're probably not going to be shocked when you read 2 Corinthians 9.15. And this is what launched this morning's lesson, the centerpiece of it at least. 2 Corinthians 9.15 reads simply, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Up here on the board, our hope is in Christ. That is what we just read with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Otherwise, we ought to be pitied. Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. 
But that is the truth. You did not, you do, oh, I'm going to cry. We don't deserve them. We don't deserve them. How do we, how do we say we deserve Christ? Anybody in here want to stand up here and say, and displace me and say you deserve Christ? We don't deserve them. That's mercy. If we got what we deserve, we'd all be sentenced to hell. We don't deserve Christ. It's like being the most terrible, which we are, most awful, disgusting, promiscuous woman ever. And you get the perfect husband walk up to you and says, I want you. What are you going to say? I don't deserve you. You're perfect. I'm disgusting. I know. I still want you. I want you to be my bride. (laughs) We don't deserve them. That's the essence of mercy. Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. John 3, 16 to 17, Ephesians 2, 4 to 7, 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16, Titus 3, 3 to 7, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, 2, 9 to 10, Jude 17 to 25. For starters, for example, for this morning, go to John 3, 16. John 3, 16. We don't deserve any of this. That's the point. So therefore, our hope is in Christ, and Christ becomes the great expression of mercy. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Save who? Wretchedness? Disgusting creatures? Self-serving? Disgusting, sinful creatures? Yeah, them. You're going to become a man? You're going to send yourself to a cross even? You're going to bear the weight of my sin? My personal sin? so that I might be saved through you? You want to be my husband? Is this for real? Yep. He didn't have to give us His Son, but mercy, as they say, triumphed even over judgment. Again, the point on the board that we're developing is Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. Go to Ephesians 2, 4. Ephesians 2, verse 4. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What? Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. What? Again, God didn't have to send his son, but he did. And it is the great revelation of mercy throughout all of human history. Paul, for example, was forever grateful for God's mercy. Go to 1 Timothy 1.12. 1 Timothy 1.12. And if anyone knows anything about Paul, you know where he came from. You know he was the great persecutor of the church. And because of that, because of that, because of that chasm between where he had come from and where he was when he wrote this, his gratitude was that much more amplified. And that's why, for me personally, some of the greatest evangelists I've ever seen, I've ever met personally, are the ones that were the most, by all definitions, destitute, morally destitute. 1 Timothy 1.12 I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. How often can we relate to this? I don't know, maybe, maybe you have a few stories of your own worth reflecting on this afternoon. Maybe you have a few things that you did before you were saved even that are, even by world standards, grotesque. I don't know. But God saw that. Jesus felt it on the cross. And still He saved you. Seriously? Yep. (laughs) Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. And we're going to get to this in a moment because this is where I get kind of feisty. And you'll see why. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. This is why I get so feisty, because you got people out there saying, it's not satisfactory. It's not enough. You need to widen the gate. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, says Paul. Yet, for this reason, I found mercy. What else is he going to find? When Paul looked in the mirror, he saw what he saw. And he saw atrocity, even, and blatant overt sinning as well as covert sinning against 
the Lord. For this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. In other words, if, if He's willing to save me, you all have hope. Because I'm the foremost sinner of all. Again, God didn't have to send His Son, but He did. The point on the board, again, Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. The epistle to Titus reminds us of where God's mercy has delivered us from. Go to Titus 3.3, where we've come from. Maybe we can share with Paul's sentiments being self-described as the foremost of all, and then being delivered, and being <laughs> set, being beset with the idea of mercy, and therefore gratitude, having gratitude that just was so very abundant. Titus three three. For we also. That's right. Don't just point fingers. Don't say, well, God only had to move the dial a little bit in my case because I was a pretty swell guy. The fact that you think like that proves that you're not. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, Hating one another? But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His what? Mercy. Without mercy, we'd have no hope. We'd have no hope. He didn't say, I'm going to save those who are close enough because that's as far as my mercy extends. And there are just some sins, like some churches teachers teach, even this Sunday morning, there are some, some sins that are just so heinous. My mercy can't go that far. He didn't say that. He said, this has nothing to do with you or your deeds even. This is according to my mercy. I'm the one choosing to save you. And as we've learned in the past, if, if, you're not, if I'm not trying to save you, I'm not going to draw you to myself. You, you're not even going to be able to come to me. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, also known as the indescribable gift. You see, mercy is a gift. Jesus Christ is the great expression of mercy. So that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope 
of eternal life. This is figuratively like a person who is a complete train wreck rolling around in sidewalk sewage, not a penny to their name, just a, a credent by all accounts, who the next day ends up at the right hand of the king in his court. Are you serious with this stuff? Can this, this stuff can't even be made up except in fairy tales or in God's salvation plan for you and I. This is unbelievable. This is mercy. It's unfathomable. <laughs> it's indescribable. Right? Isn't it worth fighting for? Don't you get pissed off? Excuse my French. Art's like, come on, man. I'm sorry. No disrespect. Don't you get mad? Don't you feel like throttling the world? Yeah, now you know why I'm up here. <laughs> now you know why we spent, what, three years now almost on the gospel? Because everything we learn in the Bible goes right back to the gospel. Go to First uh, Peter one three. Another apostle's perspective, Peter's this time. First Peter one three. This is why we fight, my friends. This is why we get righteously indignant at people who try to pervert the gospel truth. First Peter one three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Without His mercy, we'd have no hope. According to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again, which is a miracle, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected, who are protected. I like that. I like knowing that I'm protected. I like that my great shepherd protects me. I like that he doesn't want to let me go. I like that he says, I lost not one. It makes me feel secure. It gives me hope. Not just today, but forever. That's what eternal life is. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, there's more to come. There's going to be fireworks. This is going to be a blast. This is going to be a nice, really cool ride. I love how Peter describes our hope in Christ as a result of God's mercy as a, quote, living hope. It really makes us think about how God, about how without God's mercy, we'd have no hope. 
Again, what are we developing? Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. Go to uh, 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, our hope is in Christ. He is the great expression of said mercy. Now, I want to read this last passage now. And it's arguably the most appropriately placed in our lesson this morning because as I was reflecting on, uh, as I was driving in this morning, given the murmuring and the complaining people are doing because of something as temporal as power outages, etc., that people would be much more content in whatever circumstances they are in if they just abided in the living hope that Peter spoke of. And while people mock us, true Christians, people with a hope that transcends life itself, while people mock us, we find a certain contentment in times of tribulation. We are mocked for our faith, yet it is our faith that overcomes this world. So says yet another apostle who knew Jesus personally. 1 John 5, 4 up here on the board. But whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So we ought to remember this, my friends, in the spirit of Paul's letter to Jude. Go to Jude 17 now. Jude 17, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith that what? God is merciful. That Jesus Christ is who He said He was. So we ought to remember these things. Jude 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. That is literally this world. Mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Waiting anxiously for the what? The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And by the by, 
while you're having this, have mercy on some who are doubting. As I alluded to last Sunday, our lessons, the last year's lesson, have not been targeted at the downtrodden who are open and humbly accepting of the great physician. Those have not been our lessons. Our lessons have been against Pharisees, against false professors, people who have the audacity to come into a church like this and profess Christ and still live in the self-life and play this ridiculous game. That's where our lessons have been against and opposed to. But as many of you know, in your own evangel uh, evangelistic activities, you know there are a lot of people, there's still soil out there. There's a lot of people who are beaten down to a pulp. And as I said in the blog, that's the advantageous estate of brokenness. That's a wonderful place to be, and that's a wonderful place to find somebody as an evangelist. Because humility and repentance are no longer the problem. Unless they persist, of course. But that's a really sweet spot to give the gospel. So you find people in various stages, just like the parable of the soils says. You find people in various stages of conversion. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes, sometimes it doesn't. But have mercy on them. Because that was you one day, not so long ago maybe. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others. Snatching them out of the fire, verse 23. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. That's right. I don't know about you, but I'm afraid for people. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. I wonder how many times that's taught. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In other words, there's only one sovereignty in this universe. We ought to respect it and respect His wishes and not let others even persist in their ungodliness even though they wear a t-shirt that says, I'm a Christian. That's the fight we've been fighting. Do you understand? And it's a good fight because as we just saw, this is about saving souls. Save some. Love them enough to tell them the truth. And if you become their enemy, so be it. But let us not allow Satan to pervert what mercy is. We'll get to this in a moment. Again, the sovereign of the universe did not have to send his only begotten son to save us, but he did. It's interesting, our last two series have been on, you know, what is repentance, what is good, and who gets to define it. And here we are again in the midst of a special, in essence, a special, once again, pondering a good definition for God's mercy. But let's face it, modern Christianity is wrought with bad definitions 
and one of them is certainly mercy. So let me see if I can take a stab at about what, unfortunately, contemporary Christianity might define as mercy. And I ask you ahead of time, forgive me, because I'm just trying to spawn a little critical thinking in your souls. I'm not postulating that I know exactly if the particular perversion I'm about to share with you is at the top of Satan's list of lies regarding mercy. But I'm convinced it's prevalent, at least in the United States. So let me just throw this out here. Where are we at here? Right here. One particular way in which contemporary Christian churches have perverted the definition of mercy is to propose the following lie. God, quote, God is so merciful that he grants forgiveness even to those who refuse his son, who refuse to repent, who refuse to be humbled, but live a good life. That, my friends, believe it or not, you may not be aware of it being in this particular church, is being peddled, and it's being called Christian. Because God is so loving, and God is so merciful, that He grants salvation to people who deny Christ. But they're good people. And since Christ was good and God likes good things, he'll save them. That is not mercy. That is not mercy. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Up here on the board, on God's mercy, mercy does not widen the gate that leads to life. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. That is not merciful. Let me tell you what mercy... Look... It is abundantly merciful for God to even open said gate. Didn't we just see that? He didn't have to send His Son. And He sent His Son. It is abundantly merciful for God to even open the gate to salvation. Amen? But today's Christianity says that's not enough. That's an insult to the cross. It wasn't what? It wasn't enough? It wasn't mercy enough for God to send His own Son to die on the cross? That wasn't enough? For real? we got to shoehorn the gate even wider somehow, if that's even possible, which it's not. I speak as a man. This is what we're going to propose? Mercy does not widen the gate that leads to life. It is abundantly merciful for God to even open said gate at all. Go to Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. We just need a perspective change. That's what's going on. Satan's done a masterful job at coming at God sideways. It's the same thing he did in the garden. He just doesn't want you to know everything that he knows. Do you understand? This is what Satan does. He undermines God and his grace and his mercy and his love by suggesting something else from the side. By calling God a shyster? 
But what else are we calling God if we say his, his mercy is insufficient or unsatisfactory? He didn't have to open the gate at all. He didn't have to make a way at all. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates. How much more do we need? God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Oh, there's wrath, my friends. The world doesn't want to understand that. The world doesn't want to accept that. Christian churches nowadays do not want to accept that the wrath of God exists even. That God is so merciful and so loving that there's no longer any such thing as the wrath of God. But there is. And if you even read 10% of what Jesus Christ spoke in the Bible, you know there is. Why is everybody lying? And then calling it mercy. That's Satan. You see? This is about the gospel. Be grateful you know the truth. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Again, on the board, God's mercy. Mercy does not widen the gate that leads to life. It is abundantly merciful for God to even open said gate at all. And I think it's this last point on the board that really must cause us to take pause and rejoice in God's merciful plan to sanctify us. I was just thinking about this. Reflect on this with me. I think that it's human nature to focus on the things that aren't present rather than the things that are. Don't we do that in, like all the time? God gives us grace. Everyone in here... Eight this morning, presumably. I forgot to because my routine was off after my Portuguese shower. I forgot. TMI, too bad. Right? I forgot to eat. I got here, and thankfully I had some trail mix in my refrigerator that I was, like, voracious on. And I had some G2. Great. So what could I have done, though? Oh, I didn't get to eat this morning. But I did get to eat. But it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted steak and eggs. Not that I have steak and eggs. Right? It's human nature to always focus on the things we don't have that aren't present rather than the things that are. Well, that's great that God sent His Son, but what about these people over here? Seriously? I think you're missing the point. What about my niece? What about my nephew? What about them? They're just confused. No, they're not. That's a lie, too. They're not confused. Otherwise, God's a liar. And God's own spirit can't convict somebody, which make him unjust every time he sentenced someone like that to the lake of fire. So I guess God's a liar. That's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. The father of lies. God's a liar. He's lying to you. 
Just like he did in the garden. He's lying to you. He just doesn't want you to know what he knows. He's lying to you. No, he's not. We always focus on the things that aren't. That's Satan's way. Instead of the things that are. Which is God's way. What I mean to say is that like Satan... Instead of rejoicing in all the ways that God has revealed His perfect grace, mercy, and love to mankind, we spend inordinate amounts of time, our fleshes do anyways, focusing and being focused by the kingdom of darkness on what God supposedly does not do for mankind. The whole concept is incredible, given the abundance of mercy God has shown those born in sin, those estranged from His very essence. What's even more ridiculous is that we humans, the ones calling God to the carpet, can't even get over those transgressors against us from just yesterday alone. You know, we're the ones holding grudges. We're the ones calling the holy God of the universe to the carpet, and we can't get over yesterday's transgressor against us. While we specialize in holding grudges, guilting and shaming those who have sinned against us, even passing condemnation on them. We specialize in it. We, the same person turns to God and says, Why aren't you even more merciful than you already are? As if that even makes sense. Again, I speak as a man. But that's what people say. Why are you not even more merciful than you already are? Why can't you open the gate a little bit more? Up here on the board, all I can say on that is this on the topic of God's mercy. God's mercy is far beyond human comprehension even. There are things that He does for us that we won't know about until heaven. If ever, I guess. There are things He's doing in your life right now and you're, you're despising Him for it. How dare He deny me this thing that I want? And it's like the most merciful thing He could possibly do for you. That comes many times in the form of romantic relationships, by the way, but that's another, another question altogether. How dare you deny me romantic relationships? Yeah, but you know what? I know you well enough. If you got it, you'd implode. Haven't we had this conversation like nine times already? Haven't you proven it to yourself yet that I'm right and you're wrong? That I know what's best and you're an idiot? That all you need to do is is go to the pasture and eat and shut up and stop going. All right, I'm starting to preach again. I'm starting to get. See? I get mad. Not at you. At the presence of evil. At the presence of people stealing your contentment, your peace that's yours to have. Because you buy a lie. Because Satan comes in and says, have you thought of this? He's lying to you. The bald guy, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. That's not a newsflash, by the way. (laughs) 
You're not that smart. I'm not out of my mind. I love you. God loves you infinitely more than I ever could. And he's like, what are we doing to my mercy now? Are you saying it's unsatisfactory to you? Because someone you love, someone you care about, rejects Christ? Is this what this has come down to? God's mercy is far beyond human comprehension even. For who knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart except Him? Hebrews 4.12 And yet, man is never satisfied with God, always willing to challenge Him, His grace, His mercy, His love. It's unbelievable. Why? We listen to the serpent who's always whispering in our ears, suggesting that questioning God's very essence is the right thing to do. But you see, my friends, that is just about the most arrogant thing we can ever do in this life, to question God at who He is, at who He says He is. To question the veracity of God is about the most arrogant thing we can ever do in this life. Because if God's not who He says He is, all bets are off. If he's even lied a smidgen once, you might as well take this and burn it. Because now you don't know what's true and what's not true. Because now our God is like the God of this world, a liar. And what are we going to trust? And what kind of hope are you going to have in that? That's why you see a person who says they're a Christian and they're living the most insecure, unsatisfying, unfilling life ever, something's wrong. Something is wrong. They're following the wrong God. Because a true believer has their self-esteem in Christ Jesus. And that, my friends, has been put there by the holy God of the universe. To question God at face value is the most arrogant thing we can ever do in this life. As I've taught you in the past, up here on the board, the satanic way, we never have the right to put God on trial. The next time you start questioning God, say that to yourself. We never have the right to put God on trial. That is what Satan in the kingdom of darkness suggests we do. For example... For man to question the, quote, limits of God's mercy is to put him on trial. To suggest they're unsatisfactory is literally to put God on trial, to question him. This is how the rising up of the so-called ecumenical church is occurring as I teach you this day. In brief, this movement is Something that proposes that God is so merciful, so merciful, that people don't even have to be believers in Christ to be saved. He's so merciful and so loving, you don't even have to be a believer in Christ. Then why do you call yourself a Christian? It doesn't even make sense, but anyways. You don't even have to be a believer in Christ to be saved. That's the ecumenical church. Come all. Buddhas, Hindus, Christians, Jews... Uh, you name it. Just, let's just all come to the table. We'll all say we all have the same God. No, we don't. 
All of you have the same God. That's the God of this world. But that's not my God. That's not the God of the Bible. I'm not willing to challenge His veracity. Some are saying that as long as a person follows... Remember, Satan's not afraid to use Scripture. Some are saying that as long as a person follows the Beatitudes, you know, be merciful, be this, be that, you know, in other words, be a morally upright person, that God will save them. And by the way, these are so-called Christians joining in the ranks of those proposing such lies against God Himself. If you step back and reflect upon this, this is nothing more than arrogant man saying to God's face, your mercy is unsatisfactory. The gate is too narrow. Your mercy is unsatisfactory. So we are going to broaden it so more people can be saved. In other words, let me show you, God, what true mercy looks like. If man can even do with such a thing. Again, I know he cannot, as I speak as a man. But that's the lie, my friends. This is why I fight so hard to protect your souls from such things. The lies are accelerating, compounding as I speak even, and the flesh is eating them up, all in the name of a different Jesus. The gospel itself has been made more palatable for mankind, if that's even possible which it is not. I suppose the encouraging part in all of this is that this fight, though different today, isn't a novel one. For Paul especially wrote about people trying to make moral uprightness the means to salvation. Remember the premise is that God's so merciful that if you're just good, He'll save you. The Jews during Paul's time were constantly trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus, presenting a different gospel, though as we'll see Paul write, for a different gospel which is really not another. Go to Galatians 1.1. Galatians 1 verse 1. This is why we fight the way we fight. This is the good fight, my friends. The last time I checked, fighting... Um, implies bruising, cuts, contention, confrontation, unpleasantness. But yet, behind it all, we have a joy set before us. We're fighting for our king. Remember the one who took you out of the sewer pipe and said, come sit near me? You remember that one? Yeah, we're fighting for that one. The one who took you out of complete destitution and made you alive in Christ? Yeah, we're fighting for that one. Galatians 1.1 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. That speaks volumes, by the way. Not sent from men or men's definitions of grace, mercy, love, blah, blah, blah. Not on the backbone of men's thoughts about God, but from God. I ride truth. Paul, Paul, an apostle, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. I love that he added that, which is really not another. Because we use the word gospel and we just say, oh, it must be. No, it's not. Because there's only one true gospel. For a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Up here on the board, distort is from metastrepo in the Greek. It means to turn something into its opposite. By adding moral law to the gospel, false teachers effectively destroy God's grace and mercy, turning the message of unmerited favor into merited, earned favor. Even. That's what it means to distort. Turn it into something it is not. For example, to our ecumenical church example earlier, what they are essentially saying is that, quote, good people are invited into heaven because God is good and likes good things. <laughs> so as long as a person is, you know, not too bad for heaven, God will save them. The point I'm making is that even though they, although these false professors are broadening the gate that leads to life, they still presume, interestingly enough, a gate exists. They just want it broader. In other words, that not everyone is saved, just those morally upright. The point is that Jesus Christ and the gospel that he taught has been excluded from the picture, replaced by creature credit. And they call it mercy, which is really just Satan's ploy all along. And since that's a lie, it is, as Paul states, a different gospel. Verse 6 again, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Remember, distort means to turn something into its opposite. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, I, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For I am now seeking the favor of men or of God. Am I now doing this thing or am I striving to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. You see? Not man's definition of repentance or mercy or grace or love or any of it. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Up here on the board. Very important point. Neither received it from man. No part of the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to be invented, speculated upon, or even reasoned upon. Well, that doesn't sound like mercy at all. 
It sounds like he's rejecting an awful lot of people. Wait a minute, stop the presses. He did not have to send his son. He did not have to do that thing. And who are you to question him and his mercy? Which is beyond anything we can even reason as human beings to start with. But yet we human beings have the audacity to say, that's not enough. What? The holy God of the universe became a man, died on a cross, was resurrected for your purposes, for your sake, to save you. He bore your personal sins on his own back, separated from God for you. And then you have the audacity to turn around and say, it wasn't enough. What? I didn't have to do it in the first place. I did it out of love. No part of the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to be invented, speculated upon, or even reasoned upon. God's grace and mercy and salvation will never make sense to arrogance. However, it is the living hope of all who are saved. As we started this morning, without mercy, we have no hope. Thank God for mercy. Amen? All right, let's read one last passage, and I'm going to pull uh, Deacon Johnson up here to lead us in communion service. Go to back to 1 Peter 1.3. Such a lovely passage. 1 Peter 1.3. Remember, the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe is Jesus Christ. And for us to say he wasn't enough, well, I don't know where to start even with that. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Is that not magnificent? Amen. All right, DJ, come on up. Ushers, go ahead and get the elements ready, please.
morning. Everybody hear me okay? Okay. Do I even have to say anything after a message like that? It's, it's amazing to me how the Holy Spirit works. The uh, pastor called me yesterday and said, hey, prepare five minutes to do the communion service. And I had no idea what he was even speaking on this morning, whether it was going to be a special or a continuation of what we've been learning. But everything that I have written down was in his message. So that just tells me that the Holy Spirit is abundantly in control of everything that comes through this pulpit. The other thing that just amazes me is the responsibility of standing behind this pulpit. I don't know if you guys know the story of the, the pulpit. Everything back here is black, and it represents sin because men filled with sin stand behind pulpits. But as it comes through this, the Holy Spirit turns it into that red cross that you see on the front and this white pulpit as truth. And that's just an amazing fact in itself. So the responsibility of standing behind here, I take very, very humbly. So let's just get into it before I get too crazy and emotional. So why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the gospel accounts uh, in the upper room discourse, the Lord's Supper. And I concentrated on Luke 22, 7 through 20. Uh, that was pretty much the primary passage that I wanted to look at that the Holy Spirit led me to look at. And I think it would be beneficial to you to read that passage along with Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11:23, which is what we'll do as we perform the Lord's Supper. But the first point, the Lord wants us to recall and remember his work. And as Pastor stated today, um, through the mercy and the grace, God can't do anything for you unless it comes through Jesus Christ. So that's what we need to remember and that's what we need to focus on, his work on the cross. The Lord wants us to examine ourselves and our relationship towards him. So our relationship between God the Father, the focal point is Jesus Christ. He's our mediator, but also he's the one that gives us the righteousness so that we can have a relationship with him, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. So he wants us to focus on that as we take part in the Lord's Supper. The Lord wants personal time with his sheep as we appreciate his work. So in other words, he is our sovereign. He is our authority. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. Let's focus on that as we participate in the Lord's Supper. This is a time to reflect on what God has brought to the table. So without God bringing his son and crucifying him on a cross, we would not have the opportunity to have a relationship with the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we had to remember that we have victory in Jesus Christ. So when Pastor brought up 1 John 5, sorry, 1 John 5 in that passage about the victory that we have, it hit home. We have victory over sin, and death. That's it. We don't have victory over, we have victory over everything, but God accomplished that victory for us over sin and death, because if we don't get out of the sin, the slave market of sin, we're finished. And he accomplished that on the cross. So as we 
take a part of the Lord's Supper, keep all that in tow. Also, remember what the, pass, uh, what the grace and mercy that he taught, pastor taught about this morning. Keep that in your soul as you receive the Lord's Supper and we commune with him. 1 Corinthians 11.23 For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your thankfulness, your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace and your mercy as you brought out so grand in the message this morning. We thank you for your word and its ability to deliver truth to us. We know that this world is filled with lies and the one true truth that we have is your word and your son. Father, we thank you for the giving of your son. You brought him to the table. You crucified him. He did it willingly and he redeemed us from the slave market of sin. We thank you. Father, we ask for traveling mercies as people go back into the world, as they head home, and as they go out to spread the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray all of this through your Son's precious name and through the power of your Spirit, Father. Amen. You are dismissed.